Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Short Code Chronicles, the podcast series that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and board-relevant material. I'm your host, Felipe Aries. Today's episode will discuss various adult brain tumors. We're joined by Dr. Rory Stroud, who is an Associate Professor of Neurology at the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center, who specializes in neuro-oncology. He is also an exemplary educator and researcher and was actually recently named Assistant Dean for the MD Program Academic Affairs. Dr. Stroud, thank you so much for joining us today. Excited to be here. Glad you picked this topic. We are too. So let's get started. Brain tumors can initially present with a variety of different symptoms, including headache, new onset seizures, and focal neurologic deficits. Therefore, the differential can be quite vast. The differential to keep in mind for a headache is the primary causes of headache, which are migraine, tension, and cluster, vascular etiologies such as bleeds, hyperperfusion, or vasculitides, environmental causes such as carbon dioxide poisoning, trauma, and ophthalmologic causes such as acute angle closure glaucoma. For patients who present with a more focal neurologic deficit as their chief complaint, it's important to keep in mind stroke as high on your differential, including hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke, but also TIA and Bell's palsy. So now that we have our broad differential in mind, let's turn back and focus our attention on adult brain tumors. Dr. Stroud, could you give us some background information about adult CNS tumors? Sure. When I think about brain tumors, there's really two big buckets of brain tumors. They're the primary brain tumors and the secondary brain tumors or brain metastases. And we're going to focus on primary brain tumors, but you really need to start with an understanding of both of those. About half of the brain tumors, brain masses that are neoplastic, are going to be secondary brain tumors, brain metastases. So they're really common. And, uh, and usually what, what we see patients coming on in with a new brain mass is a brain metastasis. Common things are common, and so the common cancers result in, uh, in common brain metastases and, and brain tumors. And so lung cancer is common, breast cancer is common. Those are the two most common causes of a brain metastasis. The third most common is melanoma. Melanoma is not a common cancer, but it has a specific predilection or tropism for the brain. And, uh, and then there's uh, other types of, uh, of cancers that like to metastasize to the brain. So you really got to start with those. Those are pretty common. And in a patient with a new brain mass, most of those patients, many of those patients will undergo workup for a systemic cancer that could have metastasized to the brain. When that's been ruled out or based on specific imaging characteristics, then we'll focus on primary brain tumors. And there's a number of different types of primary brain tumors, and we can get into those details. Um, but that's usually how we start to think about uh, brain tumors and, and primary brain tumors. That's great. It sounds like the biggest distinction to make is primary versus metastatic. And so focusing back on primary brain tumors, how do you organize them? It's usually by the imaging. Okay. Patients with all of these tumors present with some type of neurologic symptom or deficit. Um, patients can have headache, but typically we see presentations with headache plus some type of focal neurologic deficit. Those patients may present to an emergency department, primary care physician, neurologist, neurosurgeon, or some other neurologic provider, and typically imaging with either CT or MRI is performed. And when you look at the imaging, and particularly when we're looking at MRI imaging, we tend to divide those lesions into one of two types. There are lesions that you see inside the brain tissue in the brain parenchyma, and that opens a certain differential. And then there are lesions that are outside the brain parenchyma in the meninges or the dura or the cerebellopontine angle or the pineal region or the cella pituitary region or in specific regions um, that we may see, and that opens a different differential. The most common primary brain tumors that we think about, gliomas or glioblastoma, 
those are the tumors that show up in the brain. So patient presents with headache, focal neurologic deficit, you get an MRI scan, and we see a tumor inside the brain, and we think, well, that's something that comes from brain tissue. And what's the brain tissue? Well, there's about four types of tissue that make up the brain. There are neurons, and then there's the glia. The glia is made of the astrocytes, which are the support cells of the brain, the most abundant cells of the brain. And so those are all the most common tumors that we see are the astrocytomas. There's oligodendrocytes, the myelin-producing cells in the brain, and then microglia. And then the, forward the fourth type of uh, glial cell is the ependymal cell, and tumors arising from the ependymal cell are called ependymomas. So those are the cells that live in the brain. When we see something in the brain tissue, we think of tumors that may arise from those things. Um, and again, those are astrocytomas, oligodendrogliomas, and ependymomas. We really don't see a lot of primary neural tumors. They exist. They're called uh, glioneuronal tumors or, um, or ganglion cell tumors, gangliocytomas. They're very uncommon. The most common primary brain tumor in the brain, in the brain tissue, is going to be astrocytomas, which is about 80%, followed by oligodendrogliomas, which is 15%, and then the last 5% is the ependymomas. And what should students consider for the brain tumors that are outside the brain parenchyma? Yeah, that's great. So the, the second option is the patient uh, has a mass lesion on MRI that's outside of the brain, and there's five locations that we think of where we may see a tumor. So the first is the meninges. The second is the cerebellopontine angle down in the brainstem, the posterior fossa, that area between the cerebellum and the pons, the cerebellopontine angle. The third is the cella, which is the, uh, the seat in which the pituitary sits. The fourth is the pineal region. The fifth is the peripheral nerve. So those are the five areas where you may see a tumor outside the brain. And there are two common tumors that present in each of those areas. So if you can isolate the area and focus in on that, then you can think of the two tumors that occur in that area. In the meninges, the most common tumor is the meningioma. And the uncommon tumor that can occur in the meninges is called a hemangiopericytoma, which is a tumor that develops on the pericytes. Pericytes are cells that are involved in immune function within the brain, and they sit around the veins and tumors that develop of the parasites are very vascular, and they're called hemangiopericytomas. Mets can also occur in the meninges, and so a dural-based met needs to be considered. The second area we talked about was the cerebellopontine angle, and in the CPA angle, we say amen, and that's the mnemonic to remember the four tumors that can actually occur in that area. That's acoustic neuromas or a vestibular schwannoma. It's a tumor that arises on the vestibular cochlear nerve, can present with sensory neural hearing loss, and bilateral vestibular schwannomas should make students think about NF2. That's a buzzword and buzz finding because bilateral vestibular schwannomas is pathognomonic for that NF2 diagnosis. The M is meningioma, the E is an epidermoid cyst, and the N stands for neuroma or a facial neuroma. Other peripheral nerve tumors can develop in the CP angle. CP angle is really important to think about. That shows up commonly on test questions and in patients and is an important imaging differential. To round us off, there were those three other sites. In the cella, we see pituitary tumors and craniopharyngiomas, which are rare but important to think about. Um, in the pineal region, the pineal region is right in the center of the brain. It's that vestigial structure that sits right in the center of the brain, and we can see pineal parenchymal tumors and germ cell tumors. Germ cell tumors shouldn't happen in the brain. They're pretty rare, but they're very, very responsive to treatment. So when we diagnose one of those, um, patients can do phenomenally well, important to think about. 
And uh, in the peripheral nerve, we can see schwannomas and neurofibromas. So there's two tumor types that we tend to think about in each of those five characteristic areas outside the brain. That was great. Um, I think we got a really great understanding of how to approach brain tumors and how to organize it in your head. Are there key questions regarding the patient's presentation that we should always make sure to ask? Just like in any other patient with a central nervous system uh, problem, we go through that list of, uh, of symptoms that can arise from you know, brain dysfunction. Talking about brain tumors, so um, wherever the brain tumor is is where the symptoms um, uh, may develop. A headache is not uncommon, so we do see headache, but there are a lot of things that cause headache. And so typically, we're looking for patients who have headache plus some type of focal neurologic deficit, focal weakness, numbness, tingling, vision dysfunction, um, you know, those sorts of things. There are a few symptoms that students should be aware of, both for test questions and when seeing patients, that can indicate that there's a tumor, particularly tumors in the posterior fossa where a tumor can obstruct CSF flow and cause increased intracranial pressure. When patients develop increased intracranial pressure, there can be herniation of the brain downward or sometimes from lateral to medial, and the sixth nerves can be compressed. The course of the sixth nerve is unique and, um, and puts that sixth nerve at risk for increased intracranial pressure and uh, pressing of the brain down uh, across the tentorial leaflets um, to compress the sixth nerve. So bilateral six nerve palsies means increased intracranial pressure until proven otherwise. And in patients who you're worried about increased intracranial pressure, they should be evaluated for six nerve palsies. And that's an important testable question and clinical finding to evaluate. We always look in the back of the eye for, to evaluate for papilledema, which would mean intracranial pressure, increased intracranial pressure. Um, and those are two important physical exam findings that we look for when there's a mass lesion. Those are symptoms we think about in brain tumor patients, but they're present in any patient with a mass on the brain. And that could be a neoplastic mass, it could be an inflammatory mass, or it could be an infectious mass like an abscess. And so those symptoms would point us to get imaging. And on imaging, we'd be differentiating between a new cancer, a new inflammatory lesion, and a new infection. And beyond these focal neurologic deficits, are there any other common presentations that we should be aware of? Yeah, maybe there's three things to think about. The first is seizure. About half of brain tumor patients will present with seizure. Many things can cause seizure, and so that's one of the reasons those patients undergo an imaging evaluation. And a good rule of thumb, there are a lot of exceptions to this, but a good rule of thumb is patients over the age of 40 to 50 who present with new onset seizure have a new tumor or mass lesion until proven otherwise. And so particularly in elderly patients presenting with new onset seizure, um, a new tumor is an important consideration. For some of those tumors that are in different areas outside of the brain that we talked about, uh, the presentations may be different. So we think when we think about pituitary tumors, those tumors can cause compression of the optic chiasm and cause a bitemporal hemianopsia. Bitemporal hemianopsia is a very important finding because it localizes to one area, and that is the optic chiasm. And chiasm compression is something that once it occurs, can be irreversible. And so you really want to find uh, those patients before that de deficit occurs and, tr and treat the problem or address um, what may be going on. Uh, typically, pituitary lesions can often cause headache, which is not uncommon, and endocrinologic abnormalities. So patients can have galactorrhea or problems with sexual dysfunction or uh, menstrual irregularities or thyroid um, abnormalities. And so those are important things to think about and would screen for in those patients. 
And then the last is that presentation of the cerebellopontine angle tumors. Many of those tumors will cause compression of the cranial nerves that are at the cerebellopontine angle. At the CP angle, we see cranial nerves 6, 7, and 8. And so we can see sensory neural hearing loss, sometimes vertigo, and occasionally a sixth nerve palsy because of the cranial nerves that live at that cerebellopontine angle. Makes sense. And for our primary brain tumor patient, are there risk factors that you associate with uh, the different types of tumors? Yeah, that's a great question. And a question that patients often ask us is, well, why did this happen? And what did I do or what was done that, uh, that, that caused this to occur? There is one cause, a predisposing factor for brain tumors, and that's radiation. So children that have received radiation early in life uh, to the brain for whatever reason um, will be at risk for late treatment-induced or radiation-induced tumors. And there are two tumors we think about, and the most common are radiation-induced meningiomas, and the second would be high-grade uh, uh, parenchymal brain tumors, high-grade high primary brain tumors, and that's glioblastoma. But that's really the, the one predisposing factor that we see. Cell phones don't cause brain tumors. Um, occupational hazards or you know, living next to, to golf courses or pesticides, all these things have been evaluated, and there's no link, uh, no consistent or reliable link to an increased risk of brain tumors um, from those things. We do see that some tumors have a certain demographic predilection. So meningiomas are more common in women. There's about a two to one higher uh, likelihood of meningiomas occurring in women. And there are some racial differences in some of the brain tumors. Um, but in general, there's not a, an occupational risk like smoking or obesity or things that we link to the, uh, the risk of brain tumors. They tend to occur in people who are young and people who are healthy um, and don't have uh, some of those other predisposing factors that we think about with other cancers. Makes it difficult, I guess, for patients to try to change modifiable life factors to avoid this. Yeah, I think when patients are first diagnosed with these things, you know, they want to they identify the cause and say, well, this is what did it, and, and, and that doesn't exist. Um, and so that, that can be very difficult for patients. On the flip side of that, the patients who we tend to treat tend to be very healthy. They tend to tolerate treatment very well. Um, and that, uh, that, is, uh, that portends more favorable outcomes in, in some of our patients and is something that we look at when we're first evaluating patients for treatment. Before we do move on to our diagnostic workup for these patients, are there any key physical exam maneuvers that we should always do for our potential brain tumor patient? We like a complete neurologic exam, and that includes fundoscopy. Fundoscopy is important. It's a part of the complete exam, but we don't often think about it when we're evaluating patient acutely in the ER. Um, or those sorts of things. We do like to do a general physical exam. And, um, and the vast majority of brain tumors are sporadic brain tumors and are not inherited. But there are a few rare inherited conditions that can predispose to brain tumors. And the three that students should think about are NF1, NF2, and tuberous sclerosis. NF1 is neurofibromatosis, NF2 is neurofibromatosis type 2, and TS uh, is tuberous sclerosis. Those have characteristic cutaneous findings in addition to a number of other uh, clinical criteria that fall outside of this discussion, probably. Um, but those cutaneous findings uh, are evident on physical exam. So NF1 patients have cafe macules uh, and neurofibromas. NF2 patients really don't have cutaneous manifestations. They have three characteristic brain tumors, primary brain tumors. We talked about the vestibular schwannomas, spinal ependymomas, and meningiomas are seen in NF2. And TSC, or tuberous sclerosis patients, have ash leaf macules. Those are not the hyperpigmented dark spots that you see with NF1, 
They're the hypopigmented light spots, uh, birthmarks, macules that you see on patients in addition to a number of other cutaneous findings. So those would be important to look for, not present in all patients, a little bit more common in pediatric or adolescent brain tumor patients, um, but an important consideration, particularly for test questions around brain tumor. So let's say our patient, we're very certain they have a potential brain tumor. What does our diagnostic workup look like? Most patients are presenting urgently to an emergency department and will have a CT done. We know that CTs and MRIs are different. CT is really most sensitive to blood, CSF spaces, and bone. So we tend to, to, to lean on CT scan for when we're looking for those things. And that's important for brain tumor patients. They are at higher risk of bleeding. About 4 to 6% of patients will have an intracranial hemorrhage from their tumor. They're at risk for increased intracranial pressure. We talked a little bit about when looking at the physical exam, and we can look at that on CT. Um, and we can see edema, cerebral edema in the brain on the CT scan. And so that's often the some of the first signs that we see. And some of the rarer tumors that occur on the brain, calcification can be seen. This tends to be a feature of more benign brain tumors, uh, but is most evident on CT. And sometimes it's really even hard to see on MRI, and CT is the best way to look for that. Meningiomas commonly calcify. And meningiomas sometimes that have really outlived their growth phase will calcify and, and be in a sort of a benign phase of the disease. And so that finding can be suggestive of a meningioma over a dural-based metastasis and can indicate a more benign process. So calcification is important to evaluate on the CT. Um, in addition, we tend to see calcification more commonly in oligodendrogliomas than astrocytomas or glioblastoma. And so uh, a primary parenchymal tumor with calcification would favor a diagnosis of a, an imaging diagnosis of oligodendroglioma. But the diagnostic uh, uh, modality of choice is the MRI scan with and without contrast. We know that contrast lights up areas of active blood-brain barrier disruption. There are three things that, that disrupt the blood-brain barrier. So when we look at the MRI scan and we see a big mass lesion with swelling around it, midline shift or mass effect, we're looking for, um, for contrast enhancement. And if we see that that mass lesion enhances with contrast, we know that that comes from an acute breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, which could be an acute infectious process, an acute inflammatory process, or an acute neoplastic process. So the infection we think about is abscess. The inflammatory process would be multiple sclerosis or some type of MS-related or inflammatory process. And then the neoplasm would be a cancer. Um, and the presence of contrast enhancement would, uh, would send us to that imaging differential. Um, High-grade brain tumors always enhance. The grade four glioblastomas are the highest grade, and they, they cause ring enhancement. So if we see on an MRI ring enhancement, a high-grade uh, glioblastoma would be a, a consideration in addition to the other uh, infectious and inflammatory causes. The grade three middle-grade intermediate uh, grade brain tumors, gliomas, astrocytomas, um, may or may not enhance. 70% of those enhance with contrast, and it's often not ring enhancing, it's often heterogeneous patchy enhancement. And only 30% of the low-grade, grade two brain tumors will enhance, and so that's often a feature we don't see. And after MRI, are there any other diagnostic tests you would need to begin treatment, or do you go ahead and start thinking about management? Yeah, so um, uh, most brain tumor patients who come in and have a lesion on the brain, based on imaging, we can be highly concerned for what the diagnosis is, but imaging does not establish the diagnosis of pretty much any of the brain tumors we've discussed. Meningiomas may be the rare exception. A dural base lesion with calcification that has all the imaging features of meningioma 
can be made by imaging alone, and maybe pituitary tumors. Pituitary adenomas can also be diagnosed by imaging. But just about all the other tumors we've discussed cannot be diagnosed by imaging, require a tissue diagnosis. So patients would be seen by a neurosurgeon. That's usually the first clinician that will evaluate these patients. Patients will have either biopsy or resection, and that's based on the appearance of the tumor, whether it's superficial or deep, its size and surrounding structures, and that will establish the diagnosis. In general, for all the tumors we've discussed, the more tissue that's taken out, the better. And so resection and gross total resection are, tend to be associated with more favorable outcomes than subtotal resection or biopsy. And the decision of how much surgery to do is based on where the tumor is, how superficially located it is in or around the brain, and the surrounding eloquence of the brain structures that are adjacent to the tumor. And since we touched on the subject of biopsy, and I know that histology for these brain tumors is really important in differentiating them, and especially on exams for students, can we touch on the different histology students should know about for the different brain tumors? Yeah, that's a great question. Very testable topics mm -hmm. um, are the histology of brain tumors, particularly in the kind of pre-clerkship phases of training. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to focus on histology of, of uh, the primary brain tumors. Um, oligodendrogliomas are less common, but they have a very characteristic histology. So under the microscope, they have a fried egg appearance, and that's the central nucleus that shows up dark and purple, and then there's a halo of white around it, which is a result of the fix fixation um, processing. That has a very characteristic appearance on histology, and that is a testable question, that fried egg appearance, which favors an oligodendroglioma. Astrocytomas don't have that fried egg appearance. The nuclei are very atypical. The cells are irregular in size. They look like astrocytes, but they look like irregular astrocytes. And uh, they can be graded. All these brain tumors can be graded as grade 2, 3, or 4. Grade 2 tumors by histology are hypercellular. There's too many cells, and they look abnormal. There's nuclear pleomorphism and hypercellularity and nuclear atypia. Those are the three characteristic features of a grade 2 tumor. Grade 3 tumors show evidence of active cell division. So there are mitotic activity and increased cell proliferation and cell division. The tumor is actually growing under the microscope. The grade 4 tumors have two characteristic findings that all students should know. And that's uh, pseudopalisading necrosis, which are areas of central necrosis. That's where the tumor is dying because it's growing so fast that the blood vessels and, uh, uh, cannot be developed in those areas. And around it, there's a leading edge of tumor cells that are rapidly growing into the brain. Pseudopalisading necrosis is a diagnostic criterion for grade 4 glioblastoma. And then um, vascular proliferation. The tumors are growing so fast that they require extra blood, uh, blood supply. And so you see that under the microscope, and that's endothelial uh, proliferation or uh, evidence of, of hypervascularity. Nowadays, we don't actually stop with histology. And so what really informs treatment of these patients is molecular classification. The first step in a diagnosis is to look at the, the tumor under a microscope. And within a couple of days, as a neuro-oncologist, I'll get a path report that gives you a first indication as to what the tumor looks like and what it may be. And then over the next several weeks, we'll get additional gen genomic data, genetic analysis of the tumor that will really tell me exactly what it is. Not only just the type of glioma, whether it's an astrocytoma, oligodendroglioma, or ependymoma, but the specific features that may uh, be prognostic, determine how a patient will do, and predictive of their response to therapy. And so we use that information to select the appropriate radiation and really chemotherapy approaches to treating those tumors. And so in the end, 
as oncologists, we, uh, we develop a final integrated diagnosis that takes the histologic findings, the molecular analysis, and integrates that into a, a final diagnosis. And that's the, the diagnosis that we use to treat patients. And I know we already talked about the resection of brain tumors a little bit, but what other treatments do students need to know about for brain tumors? Two real treatments students should know about. First is steroids. That's to control cerebral edema and manage symptoms. Really important symptomatic management. Um, nearly all brain tumor patients, particularly those glioma, glioblastoma patients, will be started on steroids at the time of diagnosis. And steroids range from a dose of anywhere between 2 milligrams to 16 milligrams of decadron. Decadron has very potent. You need a low dose to get a big response. It has very little mineralocorticoid activity, and so that's the steroid of choice for uh, intracranial gliomas and intracranial brain tumors. Important thing to know for some of those testable questions. And, uh, and so steroids is the first treatment that we give uh, most brain tumor patients. It tends to be that about 90% of brain tumor patients uh, who are receiving radiation will have, uh, we will use steroids at some point during their treatment, and so it's really common. With steroids, the things students should think about are their side effects, because they're really good at managing edema, but they cause a host of other problems. 75% of patients on steroids will, be, will have hyperglycemia. We see insomnia. Mood changes are very common. Bone thinning, um, avascular necrosis of the hip, uh, and, and other bones we can see. Uh, a range of side effects we can see in steroids, and so we really try and get to the lowest possible dose. But about 20% of uh, glioma patients will remain on steroids intermittently on and off throughout the entirety of their course. So a really important medicine that, that students will see clinically and need to know about. The second is seizures. Again, about 50% of brain tumor patients will have seizures. And we use all the AEDs, all the anti-epileptic drugs to manage brain tumor patients. Lesional epilepsy, tumor-associated epilepsy, is actually more easy to control than genetically acquired epilepsy um, or non-lesional, non-tumor-associated epilepsy. So most of our patients are on one seizure drug. Uh, Keppra is what you often see used. It has very few drug-drug interactions. The seizure drugs we don't use are the ones that have a lot of drug-drug interactions. And these are important for students to know. And there's four of them to remember. Three are hepatic inducers. They induce hepatic metabolism and lower the concentrations of other drugs. And that's carbamazepine, which is also called Tegretol, phenobarbital, or phenytoin or dilantin. There's one anti-seizure drug that is a hepatic inhibitor, and that's valproic acid or Depakote. And those four drugs we don't like in, uh, in cancer patients because they really mess with the uh, activity of our chemotherapeutics. So those are two medicines that we use to treat most brain tumor patients that students should be familiar with. That's great. And before we wrap up this episode, are there any common perpetuated myths about these diseases or common pitfalls that you see students fall into? Yeah, so I'll say two, two things to kind of round this out. We said 50% of brain tumors are brain metastases. The other 50% are primary gliomas. Of the primary gliomas, the most common brain tumor is a meningioma, which is benign. The second is the pituitary adenoma, which is benign. And the third is a glioma. All those gliomas are cancer. And so after surgery and managing symptoms, uh, they're treated like any other cancer with radiation and chemotherapy. Um, all these brain tumor patients have brain tumors, and for those glioma patients, they have a cancer, and in the vast majority of patients, that's a terminal diagnosis and a terminal cancer. And I think when students read about that in a book, it just, it sounds really tough and really terrible, um, and patients are, are often described as being debilitated. If you come over to, your, to our clinics, 
the scene that you will see is quite different. Most patients with a brain tumor have no outward manifestation of their brain tumor after their diagnosis and surgery, even when they're going through treatment. They don't lose their hair from chemo. Many of them don't look like a stroke patient with a hemiparesis or a hemineurologic deficit. They kind of look like normal people, um, and particularly earlier in the middle part of their course. Um, that's very important for students to know. It's also very important when you're taking care of these patients, for caregivers, and for occupations, for employers of these patients. Um, they often don't look like they're going through a treatment, even though uh, uh, they typically are. And the last thing I'll say is uh, brain tumor patients can be amongst the most rewarding patients to take care of uh, for a provider. We have a whole team of people who help us to take care of these patients. That's why I love what I do. We work with nurses and uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, uh, infusion nurses, respiratory therapists, physical occupational therapists, research nurses and coordinators. I mean, I could spend 30 minutes just talking about the team that helps to take care of these patients because it is, it is a tough diagnosis. Um, in addition, our patients all show up with teams. And so for the providers who take care of these patients, you really get to invest with them and their families in what can be a really tough diagnosis. Um, and in some cases ends up being a tough treatment course. Um, but we also have some, some really exceptional responses. And, uh, and uh, one of the tumors that we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about, CNS lymphoma, um, that's a cancer that we can cure. And, um, and so th those cases are, are just really fun to walk through with patients and with families and with the team that helps support us in treating these, uh, the, these populations. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I mean, there's a variety, it's very complex, but yet you still have a very humanistic side to it where you're helping patients go through this really difficult diagnosis. And uh, thank you for coming on and talking to us and giving us the breakdown of how you approach brain tumors. Brain Tumor Clinic is always open. Love <laughs> to see you all there. Perfect. See you there. Thank you, Dr. Shroud.